After our long pandemic-induced hibernation, it's once again to welcome you to the Panel Show Podcast! Each show, we bring together two real journalists and two improvisers in character to talk about real-world topics, issues, and events. This episode is being recorded on Sunday, December 20th, 2020, live from our own homes as we're still social distancing and lockdown. We're doing it over the internet via Zencaster. I'm your host, David Shore. Let's meet tonight's panel. First, our journalists... He's a columnist for the Globe and Mail and also a regular on CBC's Ad Issue panel. Please welcome back Andrew Coyne. Hello, Andrew. Hello, David. And joining Andrew on our journalist side, he's the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Please welcome back to the show, Robert Benzie. Hello, Robert. Hi, David. Hi, Robert. And tonight's improvisers are appearing as he's an Academy Award-winning actor and new bongo-playing enthusiast. Please welcome the completely fake Matthew McConaughey. That's all right. How y'all doing? It's all good down here. All good, all good. Yeah. And rounding out the panel, he's not the boy who would be king. No, he is the boy king. Welcome the boy king. Hello, your majesty. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. David Shaw, for having me on this podcast. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. So proper. So nice to have a proper English person. Oh, sure. thank you. <laughs> oh, don't choke on it. Okay. On our last show back in June, we made predictions as to what we thought would happen over the next few months. And one of the things that everyone predicted was that Aaron O'Toole would win the conservative leadership race, which he did at the end of August. O'Toole won by pandering to the social conservative side of the party. This week, he's had to walk back comments he made in a video posted on the Ryerson Conservative Facebook page in November regarding residential schools. He said that the schools were originally built to provide education, but that bad things happened there. Now, you only have to study residential schools for about 10 minutes to learn that. That is not at all true. O'Toole has also been riding the fence with regards to institutional racism. Here's a clip from an interview of O'Toole with Mercedes Stevenson on Global Television's West Block from August 30th, which was a few days after he won the leadership. You were asked after the debate if you thought there was systemic racism in Canada wasn't really a clear answer, so I'm going to put it to you again now. Do you think there's systemic racism in Canada, particularly in the institutions of government and the RCMP? Uh, Until someone defines what that is, Mercedes, I'm always going to say, I think there is racism, and I want to stamp it out. But I I wore a uniform. I, I fight for people that wear a uniform. And when you use a term like systemic, some of those people feel that you're calling them racist. So can we improve community-based policing? Can we improve training? Can we make sure that communities that are losing faith in, in the public services or the RCMP can have that faith restored? I'd invite you. What is the definition of systemic racism? There is no definition. It's tossed around. Well, there, there's certainly definitions out there. It's not the indication necessarily individuals are racist, but that a system itself is operating in a way that is oppressing people or is discriminating I like the way that he cut her off after he asked, can you define it? He just cut her off before she could even answer because there, you, all you have to do is Google it. It is definitely definable and she defined it right there. So panel, what do you think about Aaron O'Toole? Is he doing any better than Andrew Shear, Or is this a case, if I might quote the band The Who, meet the new boss, same as the old boss? Andrew Coyne, why don't we start with you? How do you think Aaron O'Toole is doing? Uh, it's a mixed bag. I, you know, He's had some good days. He's had some not so good days. I think he is 
clearly superior to Andrew Scheer uh, in that he is a more confident speaker. He's quicker on his feet. I think he's got a stronger sense of where he wants to take the party, a more strategic vision, et cetera, et cetera. I sometimes find him a little too clever by half when he's talking almost almost sometimes sounds like a, like a, like a new Democrat, not so much in the examples that you've been citing, where I think he sometimes falls back into uh, I, I don't know if it's, I don't think he's being cunning. I think it's more reflexive. I think it's some conservatives have a hard time wrapping their mind around the idea of systemic racism. They think of it as being something that is more to do with individual conduct and individual character rather than thinking about social uh, forces and social causes of things. Uh, and I think that sometimes leads them astray. And in the particular case of the um, the Ryerson um, uh, Institute, I, I think what you saw there more than anything was him being a small-minded partisan. He was speaking to a bunch of young Tories, and a lot of the stuff that came out of his mouth there sounded like, like a campus conservative talking about owning the libs. And uh, that's something he really needs to shake in a hurry. Yeah, I mean, I think what's really been disappointing for me is there's no ideas coming out. It's all just criticism. And yeah, uh, I think you're, you hit the hammer on the head with regards to what he said. Uh, at Ryerson. Matthew McConaughey, people would be surprised about how in tune you are with Canadian politics. What are your thoughts on Aaron O'Toole so far? Well, I just think he muddies the water to, to, to hide the shallowness of him. I mean, he talks a big game, but he doesn't do much, does he? Uh, he certainly speaks his mind, but uh, backtracks as quickly as he possibly can. Robert Benzie, what do you think? Uh, I think he's an improvement over Andrew Scheer, but that not, isn't necessarily saying a whole lot. But at least for the most part, he's not um, surprising Tories by being, you know, a secret American or uh, uh, not or not really an insurance broker. Uh, uh, Aaron O'Toole actually is a lawyer and, and, and has the credentials to back that up. So I think he's an improvement on on Sheer, certainly. But there have been gaffes and, 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 and more serious than just gaffes, so some real blind spots there. And I think that the, the situation, uh, Andrew's right, with the Ryerson students was very much campus politics at its worst and most partisan, where you're trying to be, you know, you're trying to be uh, some smug and say, see how much more clever we are than, than, than the, the, the liberals or the New Democrats or whatever. And frankly, I find campus liberals and campus New Democrats just as obnoxious as campus Tories. And I found them all obnoxious when I was a kid uh, on <laughs> campus. And, uh, and, and I, I, I find them that way now when I am agnostic and cover them and write about them when they grow up. But, I got, I got uh, I got to say, campus liberals are the worst. Campus Tories and campus New Democrats, at least they know what they believe in. Yeah, there's that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I know, you know, when, I, when I, I went to Ryerson and there was a campus cult, and I will say they were the worst. So, it was an active cult recru recruiting on campus. Well, certainly, wasn't he just trying to preach to the, to the Ryerson students for Ryerson Egerton, who, you know, uh, Egerton Ryerson, who, was, uh, who created all of the residential schools? He's just like patting them on the back kind of thing. Yeah, no, he's trying, you know, it comes back to a larger question of people who are, you can't, how dare you take down a statue? And it's like, you know, I went to Ryerson and I didn't know who Egerton Ryerson was. I never heard about him until the controversy came out. And I don't have an issue if they remove the name. You know, there's a lot of indigenous students at the school. I, I think it'd probably be a good move. Um, Boy, King, you've had a lot, you've been, you've been, you know, in charge for a long time. How do you think Aaron O'Toole is doing it leading. What are your thoughts? I think he's doing a fantastic job. I mean, <laughs> uh, by, by speaking quite vaguely about something that can really hurt people, he allows <laughs> those who have dark ideas in their heart to release them from the heart and confidently say them out 
loud. So I think that he seems like a wonderful man, really. Um, and I wish I was old enough to own the libs on the campus myself. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point there, uh, boy, Keg, because, you know, I get a lot of his tweets and they're just there's no substance to them. And I'm, and it seems that, you know, we, we talked about this before uh, about uh, when Andrew Shearer was in charge about how the conservative leadership just panders to the party base. And a lot of times, you know, I get the vibe that they're dangerously stroking the flames of populism in Canada. Um, Robert, what do you think about that? Uh, I'm not sure uh, uh, that Aaron O'Toole is, is fanning the flames of populism. I think that the rhetoric is what the rhetoric is, but I mean, Doug Ford is a is a populist, the premier of Ontario, and yet we see in I mean he he campaigned as a populist, but we see in practice that he really isn't. He's he's governing very much as a liberal premier would govern. I think. I mean, he's spending lots of money and that the, that the government doesn't have, and he's listening to scientific experts as we deal with the pandemic. So and and he's you know shutting down businesses because it's it's not safe. So I I think that Aaron O'Toole in government would be not that different than. Uh, Justin Trudeau, to be honest with you, because I think in this country, uh, people tend to govern from the center. Uh, and so, I mean, the populist stuff that he may be pulling, you know, to, to get votes in the West, say, or to get votes in parts of Ontario. But I'm not I'm not sure that if, if Aaron O'Toole wins an election that I expect next year, uh, we'll see very dramatic changes. I mean, the, the way the pandemic has t has turned government and turned the country inside out, I'm not I'm not sure there will be much of a change. Listen down down in America down in America that they have a saying that that says there's there's a there's only a couple of things in the middle and that's a yellow line and dead armadillos, right? If anybody's hanging out in the middle, it's just like that's the wrong place to be. In America, you got one side or the other, left or right. Everybody's driving uh, uh, on the uh, gravelly side of the road. The concrete's not used anymore. Boy King, what do you think about all that? Well, I would say overall that everything is an improvement on Mr. Andrew Shear. Oh! 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 oh. <laughs> the hounds are loose. Sorry, oh, yeah. those, are, those are my hounds. Um, <laughs> You know, I think being a boy king, I know more than anything that people don't respect when you drink milk publicly. Um, so I think we are in a better position to at least see someone who looks like a man in power, even if he's um, not great. Not great. Andrew Coyne, what do you think? Do you think that um, the, the conservatives are, continue to stroke uh, populist flames? I, I really don't think that is a serious problem right now. Uh, if you look at the way... Um, O'Toole ran for the leadership. You said earlier on that he pandered. The pandering consisted basically of saying he wouldn't treat the social conservatives as pariahs, but he didn't really offer them much of anything in terms of policy. And as a leader, he's foursquarely said he's you know pro-choice, he's pro-immigration. Um, I think what the most that he's going to try and do on the populist side of things that a lot of conservative parties are trying to think about right now, and not necessarily wrongly, is how can they reach uh, working class voters? Now, when O'Toole starts talking as if he's the, the best pal of unions, uh, I think a lot of people might roll their eyes. Uh, but he's not wrong to try and think, uh, you know, how can conservatives try to reach out to, to uh, groups of voters that really haven't been terribly interested in conservatives and the conservatives haven't been terribly interested in, in the past? That's not wrong. But as you said earlier, David, he's got to start fleshing that out in policy terms on things like climate change, for example, 
uh, you know, it's got to be more than just rhetoric. It's got to start giving people credible policies that can say, okay, this is a different kind of conservative leader. This is a conservative party that's trying to address some of these issues that tr- traditionally they haven't been terribly strong on. All right. Well said. So let's move on to something completely different, if I might quote Monty Python there. Let's talk about the flights to nowhere. Back in the fall, airlines in Asia started offering flights to nowhere. The plane would take off and land in the same airport. Frequent travelers missed flying and they couldn't wait to get back in the skies. Australia's Qantas Airlines offered a seven-hour flight over some of the country's largest tourist attractions, including the Great Barrier Reef and Sydney Harbor, and that flight sold out in 10 minutes. Now, Singapore Airlines contrasted that they had to cancel their flight to nowhere due to a public outcry over the environmental impact. So, panel, what do you think? Would you take a flight to nowhere? Matthew McConaughey, when we start Listen, with Listen, David, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I've been taking flights to nowhere for years now. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, I just sit back at home and I just let my mind go. I have a little bit of help with uh, some of the Acapulco fun stuff sit back and listen to some of the Grateful Dead. And I'm on a flight to nowhere, my friend. And it's so nice, you know. So I completely understand it. I just don't understand why they're paying for it and everything. <laughs> well, they're not all celebs. I don't get everything, you know, for free. Uh, Andrew Coyne, what do you think about the flight to nowhere? Is it something you would do? Well, I live in Toronto, so I'd be keen on a flight to anywhere. Um, well, let's say you didn't live in, tra- is there any place, if you lived somewhere else, if you lived somewhere else in the world, do you think this might appeal to you? Uh, it, it seems to me that they, that, you know, the, the flying part of flying, like the, 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 the desk, the journey is much worse than the destination. I like flying mm-hmm. to somewhere cause I like to get someplace, but the flying mm-hmm. part, the lining up and sitting cooped up in an airplane and, you know, in uncomfortable seats. I must say this to me strikes me as a sign of of, of wide scale stir craziness that that we're also we've all got such cabin fever that we'll put up with anything. But uh, no, this would not be a, a first on my list of fun things to do. Boy King, what about you? Would you take a flight to nowhere? Well, um, unfortunately, I was born with hollow bones, um, and I I cannot get to certain altitudes without oh, wow. um, kind of a crushing happening to my body. So I would love to be up in the air with the birds and, you know, and, and Mr. McConaughey's uh, fun uh, grass, but I would um, be crushed, surely. So do you do most of your travel by, by car or horse and carriage and boat? Is that your main? Oh, yes, um, or just a large dog. Um, <laughs> you can kind of attach a pillow with a belt to his stomach, and then I'll just kind of flop on top of there and go where I need to go. So we've actually just heard your plane taking off just a while ago, didn't we? Oh, that's very true, Mr. McConaughey. You are a star. That's a flight to nowhere. Thank you very much. That's amazing. Love well, it. it's so nice to speak to a man. <laughs> Robert Benzi, what do you think about the flights to nowhere? Is this something you would do? I mean, I, I don't think it appeals to anyone to fly around Toronto, but if you live somewhere else in the world. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I the last place that I flew, David, was uh, just before the pandemic locked us all down. We went to Palm Springs, California, and, and uh, the other night I was watching the movie Palm Springs, which was not filmed in Palm Springs, but is a <laughs> lovely movie and, and very charming and, and funny and and highly recommended, but uh, it made me wistful for traveling uh, again. And I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm like Andrew, I like to be somewhere. I don't actually like 
being at Pearson and going through customs and all the, you know, the anal probes and all the stuff that they do these days to, to get you on before you can get on a flight. But uh, I, I do miss traveling a lot and I feel really landlocked. So I probably would take a flight to see, you know, go up to the Arctic or something or fly around parts of Canada that I haven't been. Uh, that might be interesting. All right. Let's move on to our next topic. We're going to talk about time theft. Last month, an opinion piece by Toronto employment lawyer Howard Levitt caused quite an uproar. With most offices shifting to working from home, longtime Financial Post and Toronto Star contributor Levitt wrote an article about time theft. Time theft occurs when salaried employees are not working despite being paid for their time. Levitt pointed out that at his own firm, billable hours went down 30% with everyone working from home. And once they were brought back to the office, billable hours went back to normal. In both cases, his employees didn't think or notice they were working any less or any more. Now, I, I can't be sure. I don't remember if everyone had to move back to the office. I don't think that's the case. But they did do a shift back. Other than what's happened at his own firm and the case of the odd bad apple, studies don't seem to back Levitt up. So, panel, what do you think about time theft? Is this something that should be a real concern for businesses, or having people work at home? Robert Benzie, I remember uh, a while ago, like months ago, you told me how amazing it was to think that you all put out the Toronto Star from your homes. How have you found, how have you found this? Is this is time theft been an issue at the Toronto Star? Uh, I mean, I think my time is being thefted by the Star sometimes, that I seem to be doing more work some days than I, than I would on a normal that would be wage theft. Yeah, right? I guess that would be wage theft. Although yeah. I know I'm, I'm not going to complain about it because uh, I, I really—I'll be honest with you, David. There's not like there's anything else to do. Um, but I'm not surprised. I, I thought Howard Levitt's uh, uh, point was interesting because I'm not surprised because I think that I'm not saying that any of my colleagues is happening with any of my colleagues, but I think in some businesses that there are people who are perhaps not getting very much done because they're at home. And they're running errands, they're doing other stuff. And so they're not having that sort of seven hours of, of concentrated time in an office where they're actually just focusing on their work. So I think that probably, it probably is a, a problem in some areas, in some industries. Matthew uh, McConaughey, what do you think about time? Well, for? I just think that time's a concept. So I don't think you can steal anything <laughs> from the concept, like stealing a dream or, or stealing someone's memories. I think it's all crazy. I think... As long as the work gets done, as long as the tune is played out, I think it's all fine. As long as uh, nobody's getting hurt, it sounds like the only one hurt is this guy's feelings for uh, not being able to have a punch card on a, on a wall somewhere that can say, "Hey, look how much time I've been working." You know, it's all crazy inside his head. Andrew Corn, what do you think? I mean, Andrew, you don't. I mean, you. I assume you have an office, but I don't think you. You know, what before the pandemic, you were going into the Globe and Mail every day, were you? Uh, I have not tended to generally know, but I'm sort of doing my own thing kind of thing. I think, though, for people who are working more in kind of teams and things, there was a lot of talk in the early days of the of the lockdown that, oh, actually, productivity has gone up and maybe this is something we want to do permanently. My sense is as time has gone on that that not a lot of that is is now people's feeling that that I think both employers and employees are kind of feeling this sucks. Um, and from the employer standpoint, I don't think it's so much a matter of standing over people and, you know, lashing a whip on them. It's just that it, when you go to an office and when you're working in teams, it kind of gets everybody's mind focus of that's what we're doing here. That's why we're here. We're here to perform a job together. And you get all the benefits of people being able to kibitz with each other and that kind of thing. And from the employee's perspective, of course, people feel like their labor and their leisure are all kind of blurring together into one thing. And so they're 
they're always kind of half working and half not working, which I don't think is good for people's uh, peace of mind in the long run. The thing I was struck by, though, is this whole notion of, of billable hours, uh, mm-hmm. which has always struck me as a very strange way. I know law firms, it's traditional to do it that way. But if I were a client, I think I'd rather say, how much would you would it cost me for you to do this job for me? And you figure out how many hours it's going to take. But charging by the hour just seems to me to be an antiquated and not particularly productive way to, to think about doing work. Well, that was one of the things that struck me. I, th- like I thought right away, well, maybe your people are being just as productive. They're being more productive. Like they're getting oh. things done quicker. And uh, I mean, it's translating to less billable hours for you, but wouldn't that be better for, for your clients? Exactly. Uh, let's see. Let's, uh, Boy King, what do you think about this time theft? Well, I just think we're not appreciating what a cool point of view this guy has. Um, <laughs> let's, let's put more pressure and stress on our laborers. Um, <laughs> if we can infect their home and their space that they share with their children and their partners with a, a kind of panopticon situation, well, I think that that's great for everyone. I say huzzah, Howard. Cool stance. <laughs> You know, I spoke, I spoke with a good friend of mine um, who's a business owner. He's got about 30 employees now. And he said, because it's an online business, like they, they provide an online platform for some kind of medical testing, they're probably going to more than double the next year. And he's been out of the office since March. He's, he's not making, no one's going back to the office. He's still paying rent on his office. And I asked him about this and he spoke really poorly of lawyers right away because <laughs> he said they found they've had no issues. And people, he said, as long as you get the job done, what do I care? You know, like he's he's in fact, has said he's insisted that all of his employees take their vacation time. And even if it's just to chill out at home, that they do something, uh, you know, to help with their, you know, with everyone's mental stress, which is what's going on here. And it really made me think, um, like, it, do law practices have it all wrong? Like, I remember when my ex-wife's mother passed away, we had a lawyer friend write up a letter uh, because there was um, I forget what it called, it's called, money, the money went into probate. And it turns out in the end, we didn't need it. But he sent us, he wrote us this letter and he sent us a bill for $400 for an hour's work. And I'm thinking, there's no way it took you an hour to write this letter. So exactly. you know, it, doesn't this really kind of open up the practices of law firms? Isn't there really, aren't they really just ripping uh, people off? Matthew but are, are, you you're also that? paying for incompetence, aren't you? You're just like adding in money when you're like, hey, I don't know how to do this. So I'm going to have to learn how to do this to take my time. Well, meanwhile, the... The professional uh, person is is able to uh, is able to do a really lickety split, and suddenly it's all done. It's finished. You know what I mean? It's like paying a musician who uh, someone like uh, Keith Richards who could just pull something off compared to somebody like uh, you know Brad Pitt who can't play the guitar, just sitting there listening to him try to tune the thing up, and yet you still got to pay them the same amount of money. I've paid Brad Pitt a lot of money to um, play music for me, and it's been <laughs> horrible every time. So, yes, I relate to this point, yes. Well, I don't mean – I'm not saying people shouldn't be paid for their expertise, but, you know, I think Andrew's point, you know, earlier is fair. Like, well, can you give me a quote? And it's just like, well, this is what I get paid an hour. And it's like, can't you give me a ballpark figure as to what this is? And and I can tell you right now there's no – you know, if that guy – if that lawyer told me it's $400 an hour, I would have said, well, how long do you think this would take? Because there's no way it took him an hour to write that letter. Um, Robert Benzie, what do you think? Uh, what do I think about lawyers, or do I think <laughs> about? I, I, I mean, I, I agree with Andrew. This the the idea of uh, of a, 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 a billable hour has always eluded me. Now, maybe that's because I'm a journalist and not a lawyer, or a, 
an accountant or something, but I, I'm always surprised by how much uh, these guys charge. And we use a lot of lawyers at the newspaper. We actually have in-house counsel as well. And I never worry about that because I'm not paying the bills, but I, I know that, that my editors do. So I think, I think it's, it's one of these weird situations and I'm, that I'm very surprised has not been disrupted the way that everything else, the way that, you know, every entertainment industry has media, mm. uh, uh, you know, right. the rec- recording business, uh, all these other industries have been disrupted yet still there is this $1,500 an hour legal uh, fee situation. And it, I really, I'm, I'm just amazed that no one has blown it up yet. I, I, mean, I assume one day someone will. Hmm, that's interesting. You now let's move on to our next topic, Doug Ford versus the carbon tax. The feds recently announced that they will be increasing the carbon tax from the present rate of $30 a ton to $170 a ton by 2030. Now, most Canadians will get a rebate for the tax, so it'll be revenue neutral. So what is Ontario Premier Doug Ford all up in arms about? I'm going to play you a clip from the Premier's um, December 11th press conference where he's been asked about the increase in the carbon tax. Folks, this carbon tax is going to be the worst thing you could ever see. It's going to increase the cost of your groceries. It's going to increase the cost of traveling. It's going to increase every good and service you have out there. Okay. If I might for a moment channel Jerry Seinfeld, what's the deal with Doug Ford and the carbon tax? Did the carbon tax stand him up at the prom? I mean, he's spending $30 million to fight the carbon tax in court. Is he secretly in love with the carbon tax? Does he want to marry it? I think he does. Okay, so my terrible, (laughs) really terrible Jerry Seinfeld impersonation aside, seriously, what is the deal with Premier Doug Ford and the carbon tax? Robert Benzie, your colleague at the Star, uh, Martin Reg Cohen, wrote an article this week titled, Doug Ford woke up to COVID-19. So why is he still playing dumb about climate change? So let's start with you. Why do you think the premier is still playing dumb about climate change? I don't think he's playing dumb about climate change. I think he's playing dumb about uh, or playing politics with uh, with uh, what they call the carbon tax. I mean, I mean, there is nothing more conservative, I would argue, than uh, taxing uh, something like taxing uh, carbon rather than taxing productivity. You know, you're not taxing income, you're taxing uh, consumption. And I think that that's an inherently conservative thing, one would think. Uh, but I, I think the Mr. Ford uh, reflexively, uh, when you mention the carbon tax, what he calls a carbon tax, uh, he's, you know, his government has spent $30 million fighting it in court and had an advertising blitz against it. He said before the 2019 election that if voters in Ontario uh, re-elected the Liberals, then he might let it rest, but he hasn't let it rest. And I think he's doing the reason that he, he's still maintaining his uh, opposition to it is in a weird in a weird way it's to reassure his conservative base that he's still a conservative uh i don't think doug ford cares one iota about whether uh you you tax carbon consumption i'm I'm not really sure that's something that he would be that bothered about since ontario has a version of a carbon tax of its own that his government installed for industrial users so i i'm i think this is more about just being uh, a knee-jerk kind of conservative Boy King, what do you think about Doug Ford and the carbon tax? Well, I think in some way he must be of carbon. Um, <laughs> either he contains it or holds it like a precious jewel. I think he's worried that something's <laughs> going to be taken from him. And I understand this because me myself, I 
I have a very special jewel that keeps me alive. And to imagine <laughs> that some of the people of my kingdom were to tax that jewel, then I would be afraid as well. And you only need to look into Doug's dark, dark eyes to understand that there is a lot of fear there. So I say we leave the big fella alone. Andrew Cohen, you wrote a, a piece this week about why not have a conservative uh, carbon tax. What are your thoughts? Well, I think Doug Ford represents sort of the, as, as Robert said, kind of the reflexive conservative opposition to this. Conservatives work themselves into opposition to an idea that, as Robert said, was basically originally a conservative proposal, partly because the left adopted it, and so therefore conservatives had to be against it, and partly because conservatives have become, you know, against any type of tax of any variety in any situation of, of whatever. It, that's become kind of a, a dogma for them. But, you know, things are shifting, though. I was more struck after the announcement by how quiet a lot of the federal conservatives were about what was objectively quite a large increase in the carbon tax that's being proposed. I think that's partly because once you've got something in place, it's harder to scaremonger about it. We've, we've got a carbon tax in place now. The sky has not fallen. People have not gone to the poorhouse, et cetera, partly because there is this, this system of rebates uh, that make sure that people on low income aren't, uh, aren't suffering because of the carbon tax. Uh, so once it's in place and it, it's harder to whip up uh, scare stories for something that, that exists now, uh, and in fact, the polling data is showing that the public opinion is kind of shifting away from the conservative position on this. I think what's going to be really interesting is to see what happens after the Supreme Court rules on the federal, uh, you know, does, do the feds have the jurisdiction to do this? And if, as expected, the Supreme Court does uphold the federal jurisdiction over this, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what some of the holdout provinces do, because at that point, the, the, you know, there's going to be a tax. And the only question is, who's going to collect it? Is it going to be the feds collecting it and distributing it as they see fit, or is it going to be the provinces? And I would not at all be surprised to see Doug Ford do one of the great flip-flops of all time, uh, if and when that, that, that comes to pass. Matthew Connery. I'm going to be completely honest with you. Politics plays nothing into this. I'm going to tell you a little story now, David. Just bear with me for a moment, okay, because I'm going to take <laughs> you right, into a long sure. journey here. Every day... Every day I like to run 15 miles, okay, and then I get on my bike and and then I, I take my bike for 25 more uh, miles and and uh, and uh, that's all done before 6 a.m. completely in the nude and I and I want you to know that this is mainly about the environment here, David. David, if we don't have the environment, you know how hard it is for me to run naked. It gets uh, it gets hard uh, to stay warm, you know. And I'm just saying there's storms coming up and. Uh, this carbon tax is a good idea. I mean, I try not to take my car uh, everywhere I go. I, I try not to fly as much as I can. I try to stay home or uh, or walk places. You know what I'm saying? Because the environment is the most important thing. It's a it's a it's a gosh darn good thing, you know. And we need something to stop all the uh, all the all the bad stuff that's out there. And now it's time for us to play fact or fiction. Each month while doing research for the show, I come across a story that makes me think, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. And then I find a few more stories that are just as crazy. So we're going to use some of these stories to play fact or fiction. I'm going to read a headline, and then I'll ask each panelist if they think it's a factual headline or fiction. Feel free to play at home. Let's start. Alberta man splits $5 million lottery win with himself. Fact or fiction? Andrew Coyne, it's not a Florida man, but it did make me think of you right away because you're a big fan of the Florida man. <laughs> headlines. 
What do you think? Let's lottery ticket winnings with himself. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with fact. Okay. So let me repeat. It's Alberta man splits $5 million lottery win with himself. So you're going to say fact. Okay. Uh, Matthew McConaughey, what do you think? Fact or fiction? I got to say that's 100% a fact. Seems only fair to me. <laughs> Robert Benzie, what do you think? I, I, mean, I mean, it sounds, I guess, plausible, David, but I don't know. How do you split it with yourself? Did he buy two tickets with the same number or something? And I, if and if he did, wow, that is that is really something. And that's a, a story that deserves to be splashed on the front page that he was that confident he would win. So I guess I'll say fact. All right, and Boy King, what do you think? Is it fact or fiction? Well, um, I think that it is very true. He's found a loophole and good for him. <laughs> Well, it is 100% a fact. The man in question mistakenly bought two lottery tickets with the exact same numbers. So he won the lottery twice. And that story is from the scene. How do do you have two lottery tickets with the same number? Same numbers. He picked the same numbers twice. Like, you know, you pick six numbers. Oh, I I didn't know that there, there could be two lottery tickets that had the same numbers. Yeah, like if you play a lot of six, four, nine, you pick your numbers. You know, there could be there could be five winners. Shows how much I know. Ultimately, this is quite a sad story about a man with failing memory. So, <laughs> bit of a downer, Mister David Shaw. Also, it tells us what kind of tax bracket Andrew Coyne is in. He's never bought a lottery ticket. Apparently, <laughs> that there's a redneck retirement fund right there. Buying <laughs> lottery go. tickets. There you go. That story is from the CTV News website from October nineteenth. Sorry, October twentieth of this year. Let's move on to our next headline. Russian company claims to have patented reusable N95 masks. Fact or fiction? Boy King, why don't we start with you this time? Well, it seems to me that very possible to make a reusable mask, but I'm not trusting Russia with that. I I trust them with a bejeweled gene or uh, <laughs> some kind of violent game you play with your friend. But um, so I'm going to say that it is not, this is not a fact. You're going to say it's fiction. Okay, Robert Benzie, what do you think? Is that fact or fiction? Uh, well, as we all know, all great innovations come from Russia, so it must be fact. <laughs> all right, Matthew McConaughey, what do you think? Well, I, I think that's probably a, a piece of fact right there. That's unbelievable. Okay. No Russia. And your coin, what do you think? Andrew Cohen, I, think I think you're messing with us. I think that you threw in Russia to make it sound plausible because they would do shady things like this. And I think it's made up. I think it's fiction. I think Andrew Coyne knows me a little too well. It is 100% fiction. I did make that up. <laughs> well. Yes, I did make that up. Okay. Let's see if I made the next one up or not. What do you think? All right. Chocolate snow falls on Swiss town after ventilation defect at Lint Factory. Fact or fiction? Matthew McConaughey, let's start with you. I don't care if it's fact or fiction. I've had that dream. It's unbelievable. <laughs> That is one that right there. That's one of my dreams. Uh, so I'm going to say that that's a fact right there. You think it's a fact. Okay. Andrew Coyne, what do you think? Uh, believe it or not, I used to live uh, next door to a chocolate factory. And mm. the, the smell of chocolate hung in the air at all times. So I think this is possible. I think, yes, I'm going to go with, with, with fact. Okay. Boy King, what do you think? Oh, it's just a wonderful idea. And I'd love to wish it to be true. So I'm going to say fact. All right, Benzie, what do you think? Is that fact or fiction? Yeah, I hope I hope it's fact, David, because I like the Willy Wonka stories, uh, Roald Dahl stories. So, yeah, I'm going to say it's uh, it's fact. All right, 
Well, guess what? You're all suckers. No, it's fact. It's 100% Yay. fact. It really <laughs> happened. It happened this summer. That is from The Independent from August 18th of this past Although year. it sounds more like a Christmas story, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> yes, to imagine eating a snowman and he screams and screams <laughs> and you go, but it tastes so good. Yeah, guess, guess where Matthew McConaughey's moving. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Oh, there it is. There it is. Let's get to our last headline. Tiger King star Joe Erotic sues Justice Department over rejected pardon. Fact or fiction? Robert Benzie, let's start with you. Uh, I th- I'm going to say fact, but but it's, it's weird, David, that the, the Tiger King stuff was so early in the pandemic that it seems like from another era, you know? Uh, yeah, it really it, it was, seems like it, Remember, what was that? I can't even remember the woman's name who everyone thought was a villain, and it turns out she wasn't in real life. Uh, Carol, Carol Baskin. Carol, Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. Uh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I guess I'll say fact. All right. Matthew Conaghy, what do you think? Is that fact or fiction? I'm going to say that this one's fiction. I'm actually up for the lead role in the movie that they're shooting <laughs> next summer for the, for the Tiger King. It's going to be awesome. Andrew Cohen, I know you loved watching Tiger King. So um, he, had his, he applied for a pardon and it was rejected. Is that the story? That's the story. That's the headline. That he, he's suing the Justice Department over a rejected pardon. Again, I'm going to go with fiction. It's it's too cute. You're cute. Speaking of cute, Boy King, what do you think? Well, I've always resented Tiger King because as Boy <laughs> King, I go, okay, there you got one on me. Um, I think that he, this person would struggle with following through on anything legal. Um, so I'm going to say fiction. You're going to say fiction. Well, guess what, everybody? It is 100% a fact. Wow. Wow. It's very recent. It's from the New York Post from December 17th for just a few days ago. It's all, I mean, it's it's all over different uh, news sites. He is suing the Justice Department because his pardon was rejected. Pretty crazy stuff. And guess what, everybody? That is the end of the podcast. All right. That's great. All right. We did good on that one, didn't we? I'd like to thank our panelists, Andrew Coyne. Robert Benzie, Herbie Barnes as a fake Matthew McConaughey, and Kayla Lorette as the Boy King. Music for the Panel Show podcast was provided by Jim Clayton. You can get more info about the show on our website, uh, thepanelshow.com, and also follow us on Facebook at The Panel Show Podcast or on Twitter at Panel Show Pod. My name is David Shore, and guess what? I've got a new podcast coming up soon in the new year, and it's a game show spinoff of Fact or Fiction called the Quizcast Factor Fiction, where I have two comedians battle each other for glory and hand sanitizer. Yes, that's right. I give away hand sanitizer. Also, Monkey Toast, improvised talk show, is now streaming its monthly show live on YouTube. Our next show is on Saturday, January 9th. We will be joined by special guest, four-time Emmy Award-winning writer-producer from The Simpsons and Frasier, the one and only Jay Kogan, and Herbie Barnes will be part of that show. You can get more info about that and watch it uh, via our Facebook, sorry, via our Facebook page, or check out the Monkey Toast website, monkeytoast.com. You can also watch past episodes on our YouTube channel. Just click on the YouTube link in the event info on our website. Okay, that was a mouthful. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you, panel. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe. Have a Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Great New Year. And wear your masks, everybody. 